from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. So they, that is um, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman, the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? A loving pastor went to visit the home of an elderly lady in his church. She was a widow, had been widowed about 18 months. And they went through the uh, pictures and the memorabilia. And they visited for a while. There was a, absolutely no trace of self-pity, no anger or bitterness in her at all. She was very positive. And yet there was an undying sorrow in her life. The absence of her husband was something over which she had never really overcome. And when he died, something happened to her that, from which she never really recovered. A widow of yesteryear by the name of Naomi experienced the same kind of loss and the same level of sorrow. She and her husband Elimelech left Judea in time of famine looking for help and hope. Not unlike some of the scenes that you see of refugees coming out of the Middle East today if you watch television. So, he, so she and her husband and their two sons left Judea and went down to Moab and took up residence there out of emergency. And these boys, when they got old enough, married local girls. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, like a thief in the night, they died unexpectedly. Both the boys and her husband died unexpectedly. And she was traumatized by this and bitter. She felt great bitterness because of the way life had, had, had done her. And she decided she'd go back to Judea and try to pick up the pieces and she changed her name from Naomi, which means pleasantness, to Mara, which means bitterness. She had drunk a bitter cup. Now her daughter, one of her daughters-in-law, by the name of Ruth, decides she'd go back with her. And, and her quest for Boaz is really the plot of this book, and the one is that which is most familiar to you. It's the story of love and life. And she finds this man, does Ruth, and marries him. And her whole, the whole plot of her life revolves around this new beginning for her and the joy of this new husband. But the subplot of the book of Ruth is the story of Naomi's, Naomi's sorrow and her despair and the death of her husband. The subplot is the, what I want to deal with this morning. We've just come from an Easter season with its focus on life and, and, and joy and hope and expectancy. And I feel compelled 
in light of, that, of the Easter glow in the post-Easter time to talk about the other reality of life, which is death. And I want to ask two questions. How do you think this morning, how do you think you could deal with your death if that death were imminent? Suppose you just came from a doctor's laboratory and he told you you had just a few months to live. How do you think you could deal with that? When you look down the red, raw throat of death, your own, for the real, really for the first time, how do you think you could handle that? Second question, how do you think you could handle it if the most precious person in your life suddenly died? How do you think you could handle that? Perhaps you saying, well, that's already happened to me. Well, how are you handling it? How do you think you would respond if suddenly the most precious person you know, your parent, your spouse, your child, were to suddenly go the way of Elimelech and these two boys? That's the, that's the subplot I want us to consider. And we learn from this story three things. First of all, we learn the inevitability of death. Death is inevitable. Now, we all know that. We just need to be reminded of it. Somebody, sometimes some people will say to me, you know, well, I, you know, why would death happen to me? Why would this happen in my family? Well, my answer wants to be, why not? Because none of us, just because we belong to God, are exempt from the reality that death comes to everyone. And sooner or later, sooner or later, all of us will face up to what Naomi faced, and that's the inevitability of this matter of death. The Bible confirms this. The author of the book of Hebrews says, It is appointed unto man once to die. The author of Ecclesiastes says that there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. And the psalmist asks the rhetorical question, what man is there that cannot see death? Ever since God said to that primal couple in the garden, you eat of this tree and the consequences will be death. We have dealt with the inevitability of life. And the sooner we face that, the easier it will be when it occurs. But there seems to be a kind of a conspiracy of silence to deny it, doesn't there? A kind of a conspiracy of silence. I'll just deny it or ignore it. Jeffrey Gora, who is a British sociologist, says that the, 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 the conversation, the talk about death, has replaced talk about sex as the, tab the taboo subjects. Says he, death talk has replaced sex talk as the unmentionable. King Louis XV would never allow the word death to be used in his presence. I heard of a lawyer who was counseling some of his clients about setting up a will. They refused to do it because they didn't want to face the fact that death was inevitable. You know, that's kind of understandable. We are much like the Jew who had such respect for the awesomeness of God that he would never say his name. We have such an awesome respect for death that we will not talk about it. And when we talk about it, we use euphemisms. A euphemism is a word or a phrase used to describe something that's less suggestive or less offensive. But neither our denial nor our euphemism can prevent the fact that what happened to Elimelech will happen to you. 
and what happened to Naomi will happen to you. Death is inevitable. There is a second thing that this story suggests, and that is the impact of death, its impact upon life. Social scientists tell us that that the death of a spouse is the number one factor for stress. Vance Havner, the old Southern Baptist evangelist, knew something like that when his wife, beloved wife Sarah died. He wrote, When the dearest in life leaves you for heaven and you have to plod on, plod on alone, there is no human bereavement that is greater. It's the hardest blow that life brings. There is no blow like that blow of death. Naomi experienced this. And so she talked to Ruth. And she said to Ruth, This is harder for me than it is for you. And I'm bitter. I find it suggestive, interesting, that being driven from one's home did not bring bitterness to, Ruth, to Naomi. If you watched television at all yesterday, you probably saw some of those poignant scenes, those graphic scenes that are coming out of Iraq as those poor refugees flee from that place by the hundreds of thousands, some of them literally crawling with no shoes, their feet are bleeding. And, and, and you can just imagine how traumatic that must be. And out of their country fled Elimelech and Naomi and seeking a home, seeking a place to live. No bitterness in that. Not a hint of bitterness. But when her loved ones died, bitter. And so when she went back home and they received her and called her by her name, Pleasantness, she said, don't call me that because God has stretched out His hand against me. She was in bad shape. And her life is punctuated by pulsations of passion. There's bitterness there. That's the trauma that death causes, the impact. After the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis said, the pain of death is not localized to certain places at certain times in certain days. Her absence is like the sky. It's spread over everything. And sometimes when the shock comes, we may feel stronger than we really are, like one who walked through the dark valley who said, on the outside I was just bruised, but on the inside my heart was broken. Now what kind of impact does death bring? It brings an impact that is very personal. A personal impact. Lee Atwater was buried last week. Does that name sound familiar, Lee Atwater? Lee Atwater was the chairman of the Republican Party. He was called the bad boy of Republican politics. He, more than any other person, was accredited for, the, for George Bush being president of the United States. He was giving a fundraising speech at, uh, for Phil Graham about 18 months ago, and he felt a tremble in his right hand. But he went on talking, and he, he thought, maybe I'm just a little, you know, anxious. The, the tremble went to his leg, and after a while, he, he had lost complete control over the right side of his body. He fell, calling for help. And they rushed up to the platform and, and, and took Lee Atwater 
put him in an emergency vehicle and took him to the hospital. He said, on the way to the hospital, I lost consciousness. And in my subconscious, I saw this curtain open and these words, this is the test. Lee Atwater was not the, the founder of negative politics, but he said, I was its chief practitioner. I didn't care what people called me as long as I won. He said, if you'd asked me if I were a Christian, I would have said, yes, I'm a Christian. But he said, I never read my Bible, and I never went to church, and I never had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But he began to search for that. And he called in people, you see. When you come face to face with the inevitability of your own death, that changes things. And so he called in people, rabbis, Catholic priests, philosophers, Billy Graham. And he, became, he began an intellectual search for some kind of faith, he called it. And one day a guy named Charlie Black said to him, Lee, it's not an intellectual search. It's a leap of faith. It's like letting go. It's like trusting. And he said, I did. If you read the article in the Durant Democrat last night or this morning, it talks about Lee Atwater. The last speech he made as they rolled him to the platform in a wheelchair, he whispered in a mic because his voice was almost gone, I love Christ. And he found him. And he said, I began to experience some changes that even surprised me. He said, I was the guy who found out that this Democrat in South Carolina by the name of Tommy Turpenseed, he was leading a campaign against him, had had, had uh, shock treatment for an emotional illness, and he exposed that. And when he reacted, when Turpenseed reacted to that, Turpenseed reacted to that, he said, I'm not going to respond to somebody who's been hooked up to jumper cables. That's the kind of guy he was. When he was running the campaign against Dukakis, he said, quote, I'm going to strip the bark off the bleep, and I'm going to make Willie Horton his running mate. But it's different, you see. When you confront the fact that you're going to die, things change. He said, I began to reach out to people. In the hospital where I was confined, he said, some black kids came to see their buddy who had been knifed in a knife fight. He said, I began to talk to them about, about the important things of life. It was as if someone were drawing me into this arena and giving me the words that I was saying. He said, I wrote and asked forgiveness of these people that I have offended. Now I want to read the rest of it. Listen. The 80s were about acquiring. Acquiring wealth, power, and prestige. I know I acquired more wealth and power and prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for a little time with my family? What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with friends? It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with the truth. But it's a truth that this country, caught up in its ruthless ambition and moral decay, needs to learn. He said, I've come a long way since the day I told George Bush that a kindler, gentler nation is a nice phrase, but it won't win us any votes. I used to say the president can be kindler and gentler, but I wasn't going to be. How wrong I was. There is nothing more important in life than human beings, and there's nothing sweeter than the human touch. You talk about transformation. 
When one looks down the red raw throat of death, he begins to see everything in a different light. He begins to get everything focused in the proper perspective. And things don't seem that important anymore, they tell me. There's a second impact that it has. It's an emotional impact. And the worst and the greatest emotion that arises, that rises to the top when death is faced, is the emotion called guilt. I mean, it just seems to flirt, float to the surface of every cauldron, doesn't it? I have never yet helped a person die that did not say to me, I wish I had done more. I wish I had been better. And sometimes the things that come out of us on the inside of us are like this. I wish I had said that word that I meant to say. I wish I had done that act that I wanted to do. My loved one now is no longer here. I wish I had been kind, more kind. I wish I had done more. The problem with getting stuck in these, if only I had experiences, are that they lock us into the past. You notice that? They lock us into the past. This life was not to be lived in the past. It was to be lived in the present. And you know that you have dealt with, dealt with death in a healthy way. If you are able to move from the negative inadequacies of the past to be more concerned about the positive possibilities of the present, that's what happened to Naomi. If you read from chapter 1 to chapter 3, you can see the evolution. She seems to move from the past to the present. She seems to, to, to redirect her concern from self to, to Ruth. And she made that transition, that change that comes in the development of dealing with death that takes us out of a past where we feel guilty to a present where we feel hopeful. As a matter of fact, you're not going to be able to live in the present till you let go of the past. It has third a spiritual impact. Now listen to me carefully. It isn't long until we begin to ask questions like, why? Why me? Why would God do something like that? The interesting thing about Naomi, about Job, these great men and women of faith is that they didn't run from God with their questions. They ran to God with their questions because they knew that the only answers that they would ever get would be in Him. I need to say that again. It is not wrong for one to question God. Sometimes I read such statements as this, like the leaf giving itself to the wind, like the rock giving itself to the flowing of the brook. We are to give ourselves to God without question. I'm not talking about resolution or resignation. I'm talking about submission, and there is a place in submission for questions to God. And we need to understand that when we have these things that cause us to question God, we need to run as fast as we can to Him, because the only answers we'll ever find are there. And it was 
Spurgeon, who said, God is too kind to be unkind. He's too wise to make a mistake. So when you can't trace His hand, you can trust His heart. And this is what Jesus meant when He said, Blessed is the man who is not offended in me. What He was saying is, Happy is the man who doesn't complain about the way I do my business. Not question, but complain. One last thought, please. There are the implications of death. Every 15 seconds in this country, somebody dies. I said in the early service, I said some people die um, when, you know, where I pastor, where I preach. Some people die when I preach. That's the absolute truth. I, I was preaching in Brownfield, Texas, and a lady died while I was preaching. Every 15 seconds, someone dies. In about the amount of time that I have to this point, from the point three, where I mentioned point three, somebody's died. What are the implications? That is, my question is this morning, a very practical way from this story, what is there to do about it? I think, first of all, there is the necessity for the process of mourning or grieving. Now, oftentimes we encourage people not to do what they need to do the most, and that's to go through the process of grieving. And we tell little kids, don't, don't cry, be strong for your mother. And those children, when they grow up, have problems they are unable to deal with. And we tell adults, don't cry, be strong for the kids. When the fact is that it is in grieving that these feelings are are, are, are removed from the internal. Without grieving, we internalize them and we develop internal problems called depression and bitterness or whatever. I love it when Jesus came to Bethany and He met two grieving women. His response to their grief was that He listened to them talk about it and he let them grieve about it. He even wept, believe it or not. Second, it is important when we face the inevitability of death that we enable the mourner and we ourselves who are mourners, we become involved in society. We get back into society. We get back into where there is need and ministry. Now listen to me. John Claypool's 12-year-old daughter got leukemia and died. He's got a book called Tracks of a Fellow Struggler. I, I don't know how many times I've handed that book out, passed that book out. I give them away. And he said, all these people who came up to me were telling me how I should deal with the death of my daughter. But he said, a guy came up to me and said one sentence that helped me more than anything else. He said to me, John, those of us who have never been in the darkness don't know what it's like. Can you tell us? And he said, I walked out of that room and for the first time he said, I began to understand that there was a reason for me to go on living. And the reason for me to go on living was that I had been in the darkness. I was in the darkness. 
And I was going to be able to tell somebody what it's like there. You read that book? He says all of the little answers, all the little pet cliches, all that kind of stuff. He said, doesn't do any good. But he said, in the midst of the darkness, somehow when you are about to go under, down underneath, he said, there is a rock to stand on. He said, what I had to tell people about the darkness was that in the final analysis, there is a place to stand. Third, we need to support these people. Now, I mentioned in the early service a need in the ministry that is not being performed in this town. Some people responded to it very positively. and We talked about it in my Sunday school class. We need, in this town, if we need anything, some of you will agree, we need a support group for grieving people. A lady called me not long ago, and she said, you know, the one thing that the church, our church, as well as every church, is missing is that we don't have a group that supports, specifically supports, the grieving folks of Durant. I suppose every month, at least once a month, somebody will call me and say, Pastor, do you know if there is a support group? The Department of Human Services are doing a wonderful thing. Now, I'll, I'll refer them there. But, but I have to say, no, we don't. Somehow we need to develop a ministry to support the grieving. But let me tell you, number four, we need to remember the answer for death. Now hear me now well. When I can preach this sermon post-Easter, I can have a whole lot more to say and it makes a lot more sense to you. When you see this subject, when you confront the inevitability of death on the other side of Easter, it makes a lot more sense. Because out from, that bowels, from the bowels of death He came with life. And his answer was this, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not an event to anticipate. It's a person to know I am the resurrection and the life. And now with him, with him. I do not know. I've had people ask me, how does a person deal with death without the Lord? Well, you deal with it stoically. That's how you deal with it. But the way you deal with death as a believer is that you deal with it triumphantly. And so in that marvelous little play called Lazarus Last by Eugene O'Neill, he has Lazarus alive from the dead. And he's going around in groups like this telling everybody that Christ has conquered death. You don't have to be afraid anymore. And Caligula, the Roman emperor who was killing the Christians, intimidating them, harassing them, was finding some resistance on the part of the Christians. They were no longer afraid of him, you see, because Lazarus was running around telling everybody that death, was, that death had been conquered. And so they called, they, he called in Lazarus to the, to the, to the throne. Get this picture. Here's Lazarus, and he's laughing. He hadn't quit laughing since he was raised from the grave. He's laughing. He can't get this smile off his face. And he walks in, and here's this Roman emperor sitting there. And he says to him, this is a paraphrase. I, I'm not going to do the drama. He says, now, now, Lazarus, I understand that you're going around telling the Christians that there's no such thing as death. 
And I want you to know that if you keep that up, I'm going to kill you. And Lazarus looks into the face of Caligula and laughs as one who had been with Jesus and says, Death is dead, Caligula. Death is dead. I'm happy to announce to you something you've heard again and again and again. Death is dead. And like that little family who went down into the bowels of the Carlsbad Cavern, if you've ever been there, they turn off the lights and there's total darkness. You can't see the hands in front of your eyes. And a little girl got frightened in the dark and started to whimper and cry. Her mother said, Honey, don't be afraid. There's somebody here who knows how to turn on the lights. And you can look down the red raw throat of death into the abyss of darkness and you can laugh with Lazarus because there's somebody here who knows how to turn on the lights. In fact, there's somebody here who is the light. The question this morning is what is your relationship to Him? In a moment, we're going to have an invitation. The invitation this morning is an invitation that asks this question. Why not get ready for death in life? Why not make that, settle that now? Why not make that decision today? Why not now? Why don't you come this morning, if you're here without Christ, and place your faith in Jesus Christ, who offers you life that will never be touched by death? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word believeth on him that sent me shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I love it. Maybe you need to come this morning and place your life in the church or as a Christian to rededicate yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Our invitation is as personal as death and life. Would you pray? Father, I ask you now to speak to our hearts in this invitation. And let us, Father, in the face of the coldest, hardest reality of life, find the hope, the anticipation, the joy of knowing that in Jesus Christ one will never know death. And help us to live in that, in the light of His presence and power. And to help people who have stood at the edge of the darkness and feared it. And I pray, Lord, that every decision here made shall be made in light of the impending end of this earthly existence and the eternity that stretches out before all of us. For I pray in Jesus' name and ask it for His sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand. We invite you to come. On the very first word, step out and come.